Hello, and welcome to Crossroads, a podcast from InfraLogic, the world's premier infrastructure intelligence and data platform. I'm Chuck Stanley, senior reporter for Energy Policy. And today we're going to be talking about the state of play in the U.S. energy investment market following a landmark Supreme Court case and the collapse of negotiations between Democrats for a clean energy bill in advance of the 2022 midterms. My guest today is Alan Marks, one of the world's leading project finance lawyers whose experience across the infrastructure sector spans three decades. As a partner with Milbank LLP's Global Project Energy and Infrastructure Finance Group, Alan's advisory work includes matters related to the energy transition, clean and renewable power, alternative fuels, ESG, and sustainability. Alan, thanks so much for joining us. How are you today? I'm good, Chuck. Thanks very much. Well, just to start things off, I was wondering if we could talk about the Supreme Court's decision in West Virginia versus EPA and what it means for the EPA's ability to regulate carbon emissions from the energy sector and um, pursue the Biden administration's climate goals going forward. Uh, sure. I think the EPA uh, case against West Virginia was a critically important landmark case more broadly than just the energy sector. It affects kind of the, the nature of the administrative state and the power of agencies to determine uh, how to comply with their directives from Congress as far as what the scope of their regulatory authority actually is. Uh, for clean energy and clean energy in particular, the immediate impact of the case is not to change the rules whatsoever. And there are some things that the case did not change permanently. So, for instance, the authority of the EPA to regulate greenhouse gases, which was affirmed several years ago in the Massachusetts case, that was not challenged. The Supreme Court upheld that. So, the EPA still has, under the Clean Air Act, both the power and the duty to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, including from power plants. Power plants have been regulated for other pollutants since 1971 by the EPA. Uh, none of that changes. Here's what does change. The Supreme Court essentially tied the EPA's hands in how it can go about regulating uh, greenhouse gas emissions from power plants. Under the rules that were at issue in the case, the 2015 Clean Power Plan that had been adopted by President Obama, but because of various intervening judicial steps and uh, policies taken by the Trump administration was never implemented. Under the Clean Power Plan, the EPA was working with state governments to reduce greenhouse gas emissions using a wide range of tools. The most important of those was generation shifting. In other words, encouraging states and state power regulators to shift their sources of, of power generation away from coal to natural gas, where that was cleaner, and ultimately away from fossil fuels entirely, away from coal and natural gas to renewables like wind and solar. As I said, the rule was never implemented. The court didn't even have to hear this case, but they chose to nonetheless. And in their decision, they said the EPA can only require emissions controls at the power plant level, in essence, uh, or other things at power plants that will reduce heat rates, increase efficiency, co-firing and so forth, perhaps carbon sequestration and capture. But they cannot require, the EPA cannot require grid-wide generation shifting to cleaner resources. So we'll have to see what the new rules will be from the Biden administration within the more limited scope of the regulatory authority. But I suspect the EPA will come out with greenhouse gas uh, emissions regulations that are within that narrower ruling from the court, uh, if not later this year, then next year. Right. And you recently said that by rejecting those sort of industry-wide uh, generation shifting plans that the EPA advanced under the Obama administration, this decision could make it more likely that the EPA pursues climate regulations that are actually more costly at the individual plant level. Could you explain why that might be? 
Sure. So imagine two different possible outcomes. Outcome one, which the court has said cannot happen, maybe a state might have said, we want to shut half of our coal plants. The other half can operate as they are currently, but we want to move generation away and have uh, accelerated retirement of coal plants and replace that generating capacity with, say, wind or solar or maybe cleaner natural gas where that's appropriate for their grid. In that case, if you owned one of the retiring plants, you'd be compensated for some kind of in accordance with the regulatory regime of the state. We can see now there are still issues around that. So, for instance, the same week that this decision came down uh, within 24 hours of the court ruling, there was a planned retirement, which was completed of unit one of one of the largest coal-fired uh, power plants in the country, uh, the San Juan Generating Station in New Mexico. And now the question is, what will that impact beyond rates? Will ratepayers get a discount because they're no longer paying for that old coal capacity that no longer exists? Those are economic decisions made at the state level. But a state regulator in compliance with the, the, the prior version of the 2015 Clean Power Plan from the EPA could have said, this is the most efficient way to do it. And if they did, the remaining coal plants might have been unaffected. Under this new regime that the court has said could happen, if the EPA wants to regulate coal power power plants, then whatever rules they apply will have to have broader applicability. So even legacy plants that are not retired, and there will be relatively few of them in any event due to market conditions, not just regulations, those plants may have to, in order to continue operating, comply with potential new EPA rules that would limit greenhouse gas emissions or other pollutants that are associated with, with coal combustion. And that probably will lead to a more expensive, less effective way of regulating greenhouse gas emissions on a system-wide basis. I see. And of course, the whole time that this case was being considered by the Supreme Court, Democrats were immersed in negotiations and efforts to sort of resurrect the clean energy portions of the Build Back Better Act, a variety of clean energy tax credits and other climate policy proposals that appears to have once again collapsed. I wonder if you could tell me about what that sort of the failure of that legislative component means going forward as we look at the market more broadly and the regulatory uh, aspect of this. Yeah, that's a good question. And it obviously goes beyond the scope of the case. When the court was making its rule, one of the things it was assuming is that Congress would either act or choose not to act on climate regulation and environmental regulation more broadly. And we've already seen with the Build Back Better plan something proposed by the administration as a change to statutes that's different than regulations under existing laws by existing agencies. And the, the proposals for uh, clean power and more broadly for climate uh, passed the House, but stalled in the Senate. And now we've seen with announcements from Senator Manchin, as well as the fact that the Democrats do not have any moderate Republicans that they can rely on as they might have in the past for bipartisan legislation, we're seeing basically status quo, where there, we would not expect, unless there's a change in the politics, to see progress on that package. So if you're an investor sitting back looking at this and you're trying to decide where do you want to employ your capital, let's say you're an infrastructure fund or an energy fund or even a strategic energy company, and you're trying to guess where you should put money today that will result in the best risk-adjusted return for you and your investors 5, 10, 15, and 20 years from now, what do you do? What you have is regulatory uncertainty because of the Supreme Court's recent rulings, and you have 
political uncertainty because you don't really know what Congress is going to do. You don't know how electoral cycles are going to play out uh, in the midterms or in the uh, subsequent next presidential election. So that uncertainty could chill some investment. By the same token, I don't want to overstate that because we've already seen a shift away from fossil fuels has been away from coal in particular. I shouldn't say all fossil fuels. Gas, of course, has grown quite a bit, but away from older polluting power plants to newer, more efficient ones and to a huge growth in solar and wind uh, and other renewables. And why is that? It's in the absence, of course, of the clean power rules from the EPA because those were never enacted and Trump's package is also set aside by courts. It's happening mainly because of economics and because of state level regulation. So states have enacted renewable portfolio standards or renewable energy targets, uh, other decarbonization metrics. States, large states like California have done this. Things that encourage the development of renewable power. And some of that is direct state investment in infrastructure. Texas, for example, invested when Rick Perry was governor significantly in transmission system upgrades, which have allowed wind power plants in the western part of the state and in the panhandle to serve load further down uh, south and east in Texas. So that Texas is now the largest producer of wind power and is rapidly growing in solar. Uh, notwithstanding its you know, con continued investment in gas fire generation. So all of these things have been driven by uh, non-federal regulation. And then, of course, the shift in the markets, in particular, the rapid fall in natural gas prices uh, until very recently, but over the last 10 to 12 years, due because, mainly because of fracking technology. So natural gas got a lot less expensive. That because it provides peaking uh, capacity, best made it cheaper and easier to integrate intermittent resources like wind and solar onto the grid. And the fall in prices uh, of solar power components and the growth in scale and efficiency and reliability for wind, as well as dropping prices on, on wind generating equipment, uh, has all together with federal tax credits like the ITC and the PTC and the state regulations combined to allow us actually to exceed the climate goals that were set up in the original Obama plan that the Supreme Court just set aside because of other things happening. So I think that if the administration were to pass somehow in, if not at the, not in this Congress, but um, before the next presidential election, if somehow they were able to pass statutes which bolstered support for renewable energy, whether that's additional tax credits or other things, that would spur further investment in that area. If they were to enact legislation which put a price on carbon or uh, clarified the scope of the EPA to regulate greenhouse gas emissions together with FERC and other regulators in a more broad systemic way, that would probably also accelerate these investment trends that are happening anyway. We'll, we'll have to see. I don't expect that legislation to be resurrected, though, between the mid now and the midterm elections. Right. And it's interesting that you bring up the, the case of Texas in the absence of, you know, some sort of legislative breakthrough. Obviously, we would expect EPA uh, to come out with some regulatory proposal. But, you know, with, without that federal le legislative action, would you expect the states to continue sort of leading the way on this transition? Yeah, I think, look, I think there's a, it's a complicated question how regulation intersects with private investment decisions. So, I tend to divide regulation into a few different baskets, but with a big caveat. So one is regulation that 
creates markets or encourages investment in a certain direction. So the investment tax credit uh, for solar or offshore wind, the production tax credit for onshore wind, you know, these are regulatory tools designed to create markets and to stimulate investment in particular directions. Uh, and they work for that. Set aside whether they're the most efficient way to do that. There are other ways one could imagine. In Europe, revenue supports, feed-in tariffs have been more common. But there's there's other ways you can encourage investment. But and we and we use it across the board. We have a subsidy for nuclear power because we shield owners of nuclear power plants from many liabilities so long as they comply with their NRC licensing requirements. Uh, there's a lot of different ways you can subsidize, and we subsidize almost every source of energy production. Broadly, not just power generation, but across the energy sector uh, as a whole. Another way you can regulate is if you try to prohibit or lessen the incentive to invest in certain areas. And I think a lot of the emissions regulations which come out of the EPA are designed essentially to convert what would be externalities, right? The cost of pollution. If you, if you're, if you, if it's 1968 and you have a coal fired power plant or a steel mill and you're putting out terrible smog creating pollutants, NOx and SOx and ground level ozone, a reaction to smog in the late sixties and early seventies was for the Nixon administration to form the EPA by executive order for Congress to pass the clean air act. And then the clean water act uh, by wide bipartisan majorities in order to combat smog that gave the EPA the authority by regulation to impose emissions restrictions and require scrubbers and other things that made some of those, those emissions uh, less and made the generation of power, the production of steel or whatever, you know, cars with uh, car emissions and catalytic converters. It made all those things uh, less polluting. And again, there was always a bipartisan consensus that that was a good idea. Now, that increases costs on the people generating the emissions, which is why some parts of industry or the auto industry might have initially resisted some of those rules. What you're really doing, though, is not creating a new cost. You're imposing a cost on the generator of the pollution instead of that being an externality. In other words, a cost which is borne on by society, but not economically borne by the generator of the pollution. We are at, we are behind that by about 40 or 50 years when it comes to regulating greenhouse gas emissions in the same way. So there's still an external impact of greenhouse gas emissions on climate, but the cost of that carbon or methane emission is not directly borne by the generator of it. So how do you manage that. So one way to regulate would be to impose those costs and that would potentially chill investment in that area. A third problem, of course, with this regulation, whether it's encouraging investment in something like renewables or discouraging investment in things that where it's now more expensive because you're producing other pollutants, uh, is you may have unintended consequences. And I think it's always a challenge for regulators to look at what those unintended consequences might be. You know, it's interesting to me, if you just look at climate Coal power generation in the United States peaked back in 2007. It's been declining ever since. And this is in the absence of comprehensive climate regulation from the federal government. Uh, as I mentioned, natural gas, gas prices falling since 2008 has been a major reason for that. Right now, coal fired power plants account for about 60% of the greenhouse gas emissions from our power sector. That overall is about a quarter of total U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, so just behind transportation as the leading source. So regulating those emissions could have significant impact and really move the needle on climate. To your point there, you know, one of the main reasons that the Biden administration didn't choose to attempt to reimpose the clean power plant was that 
the goals that were set out under the Obama administration under that plan were met primarily through, as you said, you know, market drivers and state action. The administration has made clear that it plans to stay the course with a drive toward renewables and CO2 emission reductions. Uh, the EPA is expected to issue new regulations likely this year to that end. What are investors going to be watching for as that plays out? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, by the way, you're right. I mean, utilities have retired over 540 power plants just in the last decade that were fueled by coal. Uh, and those aging you know, coal-fired plants are no longer part of the mix. So we're seeing investors investing in, first, I would say, in new capacity, which is sometimes gas, more often wind, and more often than that, solar. And in solar, the investments, of course, span the gamut from large utility-scale solar to solar commercial and industrial installations, but so-called C and I, and also resi or residential solar uh, installations, you, you will you will continue to see investment across that. I think we will also see investment in supporting technologies which make the grid more efficient. Uh, transmission upgrades, for sure, to facilitate the the new capacity coming in, especially renewable capacity. Energy storage, I think, will continue to see significant new investment. That includes storage associated directly with generation. So wind plus storage, solar plus storage, those projects are still being financed and are highly attractive to investors. Standalone storage and then storage as part of uh, making the grid smarter. Uh, those will all come. There may be other technologies that will also benefit from further investment depending on the pace of climate legislation and depending on politics. So hydrogen, uh, especially green hydrogen, is an area to, to watch uh, here. I think methane capture, methane monitoring, especially for upstream and midstream gas, will be an area for significant investment. A lot of that will be on balance sheet and outside of, you know, say, project financing channels. But I think you'll see a lot of equity uh, investments in that area as well. Alan Marks, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, Chuck, it's a pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. That was Alan Marks from Millbank LLP. For listeners, thanks for tuning in. And if you liked what you heard, like us, be sure to subscribe, and be sure to join us next time. I'm Chuck Stanley, and this has been the Crossroads Podcast.